Hi, and welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Democracy will and must prevail. This podcast is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, direct from Washington, D.C., with support from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. Democratic resilience. Would you recognize it if you saw it? What does it take to build it? Today, we're joined by Ambassador Derek Mitchell, the president of the National Democratic Institute, who will share with us his profound story witnessing the dramatic rise and fall of democracy in Asia, including his eyewitness account at Tiananmen Square, 1989. But first, let's head to the Republic of Sudan for the latest from two team members on the ground in Khartoum as the country tries to navigate its earliest work building democratic resilience in the midst of an extremely fragile transition. More now from the consortium's E.B. DuPont. In 2018 and 2019, a popular uprising spread across Sudan resulting in the ouster of President Omar al-Bashir's regime and ushering in hopes for a fresh transition to peace and democracy. The country's provisional constitutional charter establishes a democratic framework for the transition and stipulates that a major goal of the transition is to, quote, strengthen the role of young people of both sexes and expand their opportunities in all social, political, and economic fields. But as the transition heads into its third year, The stakes are more challenging than ever for Sudan. The country needs institutions that can accommodate its size and diversity, including an electoral and legal framework that encourages the revival of political parties, civil society organizations, and the media, and most importantly, participation by all its citizens. Sudan's resident country director for the National Democratic Institute, Samia Magoub, and Haya Ahmed, the Deputy Country Director for the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, joined me direct from Khartoum to talk more about the country's path to democratic resilience. Tensions, since we spoke, have now escalated to an all-time high, illustrating in real-time democracy's fragility. In addition to this difficult political transition, Sami and Haya have also had to navigate COVID-19 and day-to-day challenges like regular electrical outages and difficult internet access. But these two ladies are dedicated to walking with the Sudanese as they pursue a more democratic age. They spoke to me about their work just before the recent political crisis began. As you know, in Sudan, we are facing a power outage a daily power outage and which some, something really impacts our work at the office. So this is the first thing that we have to think about it to guarantee uh, to have power enough to allow our staff to work. Uh, we cannot also forget that uh, we are now in the end of the rainy, rainy season. So three weeks ago, we cannot even uh, uh, imagine to conduct any activity in the field outside uh, Khartoum itself. So for sure, Sudan faces the same uh, impact uh, related to COVID. The vaccination is available, but unfortunately, some people still resist to that. I don't think that there is a lot of uh, awareness to inform people to go for vaccination. 
we have more than 10 centers here in, uh, in Khartoum, less outside Khartoum, but uh, still need more awareness campaign to encourage people to get vaccinated. When we talk to democratic strengthening teams, we often talk to teams who have been on the ground a long, long time, but not always. And in the case of Sudan, you all have arrived in the country relatively recently. Can you give us a little status on how long you've been in the country and where your work stands? And I can say, uh, starting from April 2021, we can say that our program already start to implement activity. But even in the beginning, because also the capacity of uh, the government or the transition uh, uh, period still very low. So we cannot go more farther than that. But still we can say we are in the beginning of the implementation of our activity. Unfortunately, because of the political situation, sometimes we feel that we move forward and second day we can find ourselves still stuck in the same level. We were here in January and uh, in February we started implementing our activities. That is because of the first, like obviously our association with USAID and the trust that the government of Sudan had on uh, USAID assistance. And uh, secondly, it's also the uh, reputation, you know. NDI has been here for a while working on other projects, but uh, IFS was here in uh, uh, 2009 and 10, and there were so many people who had worked with IFES at that time. As soon as, like, you know, we say that we, we are from IFES, there were people who already, uh, some of them who recognized us and remembered the work that the organization had done at that time. So, hi, you've talked to me offline about how you've had some really difficult challenges or you've, you've been able to accomplish some very difficult things. Can both of you talk a little bit about some of that, why it's been difficult and what you've been able to achieve? Yes, it has been very challenging. In the beginning, uh, it was difficult. As I just very quickly mentioned, you know, in terms of setting up operations, we had to, we had to face a lot of challenges. Finding an office was like a very uh, difficult task, which in other countries could have been not as difficult as uh, it was here. And all this because of the long period of isolation from the rest of the world. So uh, again, we see they, for them to absorb uh, incoming uh, international assistance was difficult. So uh, even like the property dealers one day would tell you that something is for $3,000 a month and the next day when you go back to see that place, it would become 5000 But when you come to Sudan and where they have had this dictatorship for like 30 years and isolation, in that setting, it becomes a little difficult. We have to pursue a lot. Uh, we have to explain a lot. And we have to try and do advocacy on simple things like let's have... Uh, more consultations. Uh, let's talk to people about these things. Uh, but this is working. Uh, it's been challenging, but it is working. That's the best part. We are working in transition period. So we came in the country, and unfortunately, according to the constitution documents and the Juba Peace Agreement, they should have, at this period of time, at least some institutional level or clear framework that allow the government and us as international partners to start to uh, work and to uh, provide technical assistance. So SEPs based on that, SEPs based for us, for objective one, for example, we need to work with the legislative assembly. Until now, 
the, there is no formulation for the legislative assembly. So you see, we cannot work for this component, for this part. So we try to be creative as we can, working with the, the ministries that we have in front of us. For myself as a NGI, I work with the Ministry of Local Governance because uh, Sudan country is decentralization country, but even if we don't have just legislative body, at least we can work with the ministries that exist. Can you both talk a little bit about the personal one-on-one conversations that you have with the Sudanese or what skills you have to bring to the table to do this job well? You're already in a really challenging situation, and now you've got people who are really learning about democracy, maybe don't understand how it works. Where do you start with that, and, and what, what do you say to these people? This is exactly what we are working on these days. So when it started, uh, like obviously we had to create uh, our networks and, and, and talk to people to understand the situation on ground and everything. And uh, in our meetings with different people from different walks of life, politicians, members of the Sovereignty Council, civil society organizations, academics, and, and, and so on, the one thing that was very fascinating <laughs> was that uh, most of them, uh, including members of the Sovereignty Council, they felt as if, if uh, making of the election commission is synonymous with elections. And this is something which which was uh, which was fascinating because they uh, it was like you know people don't understand how much work and how much effort goes into building a strong institution, the institution of election management, which is then capable enough to administer elections. And elections, you know, it's the largest activity in any country for them to be transparent and free and credible. The institution has to be strong and uh, professional and uh, uh, skilled enough to administer that kind of an election. Thus, I think it's understandable that after 30 years of isolation, that the country really needs a lot of assistance when it comes to what is democracy, what is the first steps, how we can start and we need to start from the scratch at all the level even as institutional level also we sometimes we are in contact with very high level people at the ministry level and you can see clearly that they don't understand and i think the best thing is to start from the beginning with them it could be as a formal way or informal way and according to my understanding for the sudan uh, society i found that the informal way sometimes is work better I found also that sometimes it's very uh, important to give them another example from uh, abroad, from outside, because they are all the times in the Sudanese context. So I think this is also one of our way to push them to have a kind of study comparative analysis. And then they just see there is different options, and then they can select the best option for Sudan. So much hinges on that personal relationship and understanding. What do you think people should look for from Sudan in the next year, two years, five years? There are some worrisome developments uh, during this period, which is like the, the tussle between the military faction of the transition and the civilian government. So let's see uh, what comes out of that. 
However, when you talk about uh, longer, medium to longer term, being here for all uh, now almost a year, we've been here for 10 months, the, there is a lot of potential for Sudan to may position itself uh, within the international uh, community and also for uh, democracy as well as for uh, uh, economic growth. The biggest asset that Sudan has, in addition to the national resources, is the people. The people here are very aware. And this consciousness and uh, awareness has helped them uh, bring a revolution in this country. You know, this, this was not a, a revolution which was uh, led by a certain leader, which was led by a single ideology, as we see in other countries in the world. This was a revolution led by young people youngsters who still are working in different areas as like small resistance committees and they are still here the key important thing is to see how the transition period could advance peace process hiya samia and sudan thank you I am truly delighted to welcome the president of the National Democratic Institute to the Democracy Pod, Ambassador Derek Mitchell. In his extraordinary career, Ambassador Mitchell has worked in nearly every aspect of democracy, starting at NDI's field programs in the former Soviet Union in Asia to a leading international think tank in Washington, D.C. He has also served in senior leadership posts at the U.S. Department of Defense and the State Department. And of course, Ambassador Mitchell was the first U.S. ambassador to return to Burma in 2012 after a 22-year diplomatic absence after the 1988 military coup there. We couldn't ask for a wiser, more worldly guest to talk about democratic resilience. Can you explain a little bit about the national security implications for a country that cares about democracy in the face of the challenges we see today, like rising authoritarianism? Well, it's a pleasure to be here, first of all. Thank you for asking me to join. I, I think anybody who cares about international security should care about democracy. If I told you that one factor was a, the essential component for better economic development, for health, education, peace outcomes, you'd say we need that. And study after study after study, democracy is shown to have a correlation to all those better outcomes. And with those outcomes come more stable societies better international security. It just is a logic to it. It's not, it's not an ideology. It's an absolute logic. And how people organize themselves internally in a country, or governments do, will have something to do with how they engage internationally. So if, you're not, if you don't have transparent, accountable, inclusive, responsive governance under law at home, you're not going to be promoting that abroad. And if you don't have that abroad, you're not going to have uh, security in, in international affairs. Uh, and the fact is the autocrats are on the defense on the offensive and they have a sense that democracy is fragile and, and the small democrats around the world feel like they're on the defensive and they're playing a weak hand but they're playing it with confidence and they're trying to gain advantage while i think that the democratic world is playing its uh, strong hand quite weakly and we need to get in the game we need to act accordingly and I've always talked about the fourth D. We talk about diplomacy and defense and development as the three Ds of foreign policy. I would add democracy because without these values, both at home and in the international system, we are not going to have the kind of world, secure, stable, developed, prosperous world that we all seek. Is there one or two things off the top of your head that you think is, is really vital that's not happening? 
Well, I think going out and putting it at the center of our foreign policy of promoting these values, we talk about them, but when it comes down to it, we end up sort of sidelining them in favor of what we consider more hard, realist values. But it's not realist, in my view, to sideline values and encourage even our partners to be better at home and being more transparent, having more accountable systems. Uh, it's not realist to let that slip to the sidelines and then allow for corrupt regimes to flow, for um, people's dignity to be offended, uh, and therefore these countries to always be on the precipice of instability. Uh, for a short time, it could seem like there's stability in these countries, and they could be good partners because of the, that stability, but ultimately it, it, it lies on a knife's edge. And in the absence of our ability to uh, integrate them into our foreign policy engagement with other countries, to put more emphasis on it uh, in our bilateral and multilateral engagements, and to ensure in the international system we are pushing these ideas along with our allies, uh, we, are, we will not have um, a secure world. You tell a story from a period of time when you lived in Taiwan, and you and your brother decided to take a trip to China. I hope I have this story right. And it ultimately changed your life. What was it like to witness Tiananmen Square demonstrations in person? And how has that experience in Taiwan really shaped these views you have of democracy? Well, as my brother who came over to China, I was living in Taiwan. First time I'd ever lived overseas in my life. I was 24, I guess, almost 25 years old at the time. And um, we found ourselves in Tiananmen Square during the demonstrations in mid-May. Uh, and it was the first time in my life I had been a witness to history in real time. Uh, and that was heady on the one hand, of, of sitting in the square the first night of the hunger strike and having all the students come and asking me as an American, how are we doing? How does this look? Are we doing it right? And even then I knew this wasn't my fight. It wasn't about America. It was about them. And I said, look, I don't have a, a, an opinion on what you're asking for. But your ability to speak, uh, that as an American, we support your ability to have a say in your own futures. So I remember sitting with them. But I also know that it just taught me a lesson that you can study 50, 100 books on something, but there's no substitute for firsthand experience from being there. Did you know what you were walking into or was this sort of a, just something you stumbled into? I actually went to see the Gorbachev summit. I was more of a Sovietologist then. I mean, as much as you can be just coming out of college. But I studied the Soviet Union. Um, and I thought, well, the first Sino-Soviet summit in 30 years, I'd be fascinating to be there for. But there's no way they're going to allow those demonstrations to go on during that. So my brother and I went, and the first day that we were there, the first night, we heard the bicycles going by to the square. And the, the Chinese students thought, well, because Gorbachev is here, because the, the international media are going to be here, we should take advantage of this. So to get, ac to get access to international media for our desires, for our goals. So we actually hit both. Uh, we did not expect to see the demonstrations. We did not expect to interact with students. But again, we found ourselves in the middle of a revolution of a kind that was remarkable to, to, to be part of. We would spend our time you know, out in the outskirts of Beijing, watching the various demonstrations, um, talking to some students, trying to get food where we could because restaurants would be closed and just trying to experience China for the first time in our lives. But, you know, the students got in the way of that normal experience of, of China. Yeah. And I bet you think of them from time to time. I thought about that a lot after the the shooting and the, you know, the, the massacre on the 4th and what may have happened to many of the people that I had spoken with and experienced. 
And it, it made me come away from that experience, wanting to study China much more deeply uh, and Asia. And I should also note in those days, that was when I was living in Taiwan, but Taiwan was engaged in a democratic transition at that time. They were starting to open up and I was working at a newspaper during the time of more media freedom. So Taiwan became a beacon of democracy, the leading uh, democracy of Asia, according to the Freedom House today. How did living there in that early experience that you had help your understanding of China and the rising role the government is playing in the world today? Well, I've lived in China twice. Once was in 1990. I wasn't living there, as I said, in 1989, but I did the summer of 1990 studying Chinese. And then again in 2007, I believe. But I studied China from then on. So it was really 20 years, 25 years straight of really studying what was happening there. That was in grad school, that was at CSIS, it was at the Pentagon, um, twice, including the early Obama years. And, you know, I had a lot of interactions, a lot of conversations with Chinese think tankers and academics. Uh, and they always, you know, would always sort of reassure us their rise was peaceful, that their rise would not come at the U.S. or others' expense, and that it never sought hegemony or promote its political system internationally. And of course, they always play the victim. They always blame the U.S., Japan, and others for trying to keep them down and contain their growth. So, you know, it was important in those days for us to try to talk talk to them and try to bridge those differences, try to find common ground because no one wanted conflict. But China's line never changed, and the vic- they used that victimization narrative over and over, no matter what we tried to do and, and what we did in those, you know, in those days and these days to welcome them into the system, to bring their students over, to invest in their country. But that victimization narrative held, and they would use it to foment nationalism at home, to gain sympathy abroad, uh, to put the U.S. and allies on the defensive, and as an excuse for aggressive international and domestic activity. Uh, so that became, over, over time, quite frustrating. So when they ultimately sort of lifted their mask and became much more assertive publicly, I thought it was surprising because I didn't expect them to do that so brazenly so soon, but it wasn't entirely surprising. When people think of China, what's the number one thing that they they should understand that they don't understand about the country? Well, I think it it goes back to Tiananmen Square, the fact that, that the Chinese people want what we want. Ultimately, they want rights and they want a voice. And it may not seem like that now. There's the Communist Party has done a great job of diverting attention, distracting people towards nationalism, which is common from dictatorships, prey on victimization, uh, use nationalism to distract and divert. There is a very vibrant community online and at grassroots that are angry about environmental degradation, angry about corruption. And when they had the opportunity, they were they wanted to speak out. So that still remains in China. And they have hundreds of billions of dollars they have to put into suppressing that through internal security. So I think as people look at China and they think, well, they're different or they're they're simply, uh, you know, uh, love communism or repression. They want whenever they get a chance, they want the same voice as and the, as the rest of us do. There was an app called Clubhouse, which some of your listeners may know about, which promotes conversation. They opened in China Clubhouse for just a th- two or three days. And it, it led to all kinds of conversations just maybe six months ago about Hong Kong, about Taiwan, about the Uyghurs. That had never happened before. A vibrant conversation, an honest conversation. And then, of course, the communists shut that down. Democracy is universal. It is not a Western concept. The, the desire for rights and dignity and a voice is something every human being 
Sikhs for themselves. There are different cultures and contexts, but this demand for dignity is, is universal and it's Chinese, it's American. People are reading about the Uyghurs yeah. who are understanding that, that the situation is incredibly dire. Um, you know, Tibet, Uyghurs, um, you name it. There's, there's repression everywhere, but it is systematic in a way in Xinjiang, in the West, that you don't see. We just haven't seen and certainly should never tolerate anywhere in the world. Uh, and there's still a lot of question marks still about what's going on there, the, the extent of it. But enough information has come out to um, offend the conscience of the world. I'd like to talk about your extraordinary ambassadorship to Burma. You were the first ambassador to return to the country after a 22-year diplomatic absence. Can you talk a little bit about what living in Burma taught you about democracy and democratic resilience? It's just a special, special place and more complex than anyone can imagine. Um, it is highly diverse country, highly fractious country, uh, longest running civil war going on in the world. And now it's only gotten bigger since the coup. They've never had a single unifying identity. And the failure to reconcile um, the country amidst its vast diversity has been one of the most important things holding the country back. Uh, at the same time, the desire for democracy is very deep abiding. It cannot be extinguished, despite the military attempting to extinguish it over decades, and most recently on the February 1st coup. When I was there as ambassador, it was considered this sort of golden age, this moment where there was a, a moment of possibility. And young and old just reacted to that moment of opportunity and openness with energy, with hope, with a palpable sense of optimism and promise, with this great spirit. So it just t teaches me that you cannot squash democracy in the hearts of people. And even now they're facing this military uh, violence. The people are saying, no, not this generation. We're not, going to we're not going backwards. We're going to, whatever it takes, we're going to protect our voice. We're going to defend ourselves. Uh, and we're going, to, we're going to fight. Even if the world is not going to do what we would like them to do in our defense, we will do it for ourselves. But you know, it teaches you that even then, democratic mindsets take longer than processes. So even when the democratic opening was happening, there was still, as you know, the Rohingya uh, issue. There is intolerance. There is injustice. There is not a spirit necessarily of compromise and of communication that the instincts were still, listen to me, listen to what I have to say, rather than I will listen to others. So you know, this stuff is hard. Democracy is not easy. But that spirit, that desire was just so deep and it, it remains in my heart every day. That Those are people I think about every single day uh, of, of my life now. Is their enthusiasm for democracy retained or have they sort of lost some of that, do you think? That's precisely what they're finding. When people say, you know, young people don't care about democracy or look what's happening, democracy is in decline. In fact, there was a poll on the eve of the elections last year, the democratic elections that the uh, Burmese had, Myanmar had last November. And the poll suggested uh, lesser support for democracy among young people among the population, a little bit more frustration with it. Okay, fine. You can poll them at that moment when there's frustration. But the moment the coup happened, poll people now about democracy. <laughs> right. There, the, the desire for democracy is deep, even today around the world. It's just frustration at whether democracy is delivering according to their expectations and whether democracy is strong. Democracy is not easy. It is hard and in some ways it's not natural. Handing over power peacefully is not natural to any leader or any party or any group. 
Um, and compromise is not easy. That mindset takes time, and it's not simply about a process or an election. It's a culture that has to be developed, and it's a culture that has to be re-energized um, by the citizens every generation. And we see that all the time. That's why we see these extraordinary breakthroughs in democracy and, and why they really take our breath away and, and give us goosebumps all at the same time. That's sort of the sexy part is when you see people pushing back against the authoritarians and they take over. That's the exciting moment. But then that's a moment. And even you can have an election. That's a moment. But democracy is in the day-to-day mundane interactions among people and in the, in the ways people engage with one another on a daily basis and the way they engage their government and the way the government engages them. When you explain to somebody who does not work in this field, why is democracy so important? What, what are the words that you say? I say if you don't give people dignity, you don't create a system that, that leads to better health, education, peace, security outcomes, you will have an uh, unstable world, you will have injustice, it's just a more unsafe world to live in. And it's not the world that free peoples want to live in. So democracy matters. It's, it's hard, but it, it, for all its faults and all its deficiencies, it works in all its messiness. This is the challenge of our time and that we are not where we were, say, 30 years ago. There are authoritarian opportunists who want to prey on those who are frustrated or concerned about the course of democracy. And they're willing to get out there and use our moments of weakness to gain advantage. We can't let that happen. And I think we all need to, as frustrated as we are maybe by under our own democracy and maybe by, by what's happening in the world, we can't retreat. We cannot retreat. What is the one thing people can do to help this process of democracy all over the world? Well, if we t- we're talking about Americans first, I think let's try and work on our own democracy. I think we need to be recognizing that the strength of American democracy goes a long way to the ability of democracy to resonate abroad. Uh, It's not simply about ourselves, but if we can focus on ourselves and get ourselves right and regain, recapture that sense of solidarity at home and compromise and communal uh, thinking, uh, that will go a long way. The other is, you know, watch the news and, and just be inspired by what happens abroad and support people abroad where you can through universities or through your daily engagement just be aware of what others are doing uh, and support American policies that support them. Well, President and Ambassador Derek Mitchell, thank you so much for joining us today. This concludes the first season of Democracy, the podcast. If you've made it this far, I must first thank you for listening to our inaugural season, but also maybe congratulate you During these first 10 episodes, we have just barely scratched the surface of some of the biggest issues facing democracy today, and you've at least been able to meet a few of its champions. But as autocracies continue to blatantly assault open societies around the world, from Afghanistan to Venezuela, to Cuba and China, those fighting for democracy are playing the long game, and we will continue to stand with people around the world who fearlessly fight against abuse of power. I must thank all of our friends at the United States Agency for International Development for helping to get this project off the ground. And of course, for always being the world's beacon and delivering aid and assistance on behalf of the generous American people. We are particularly grateful for the support and collaboration from USAID's Democracy Rights and Governance Center and the director, Rosary Tucci. 
plus the consortium's exceptional partners at the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, the International Republican Institute, and the National Democratic Institute. We really couldn't do any of this work without the fearless leadership of IFAS President Tony Banbury, IRI President Dr. Dan Twining, and NDI President Ambassador Derek Mitchell, along with their extraordinary vice presidents, Scott Mastic, Michael Spetlick, and Nicole Roswell. And of course, their incredibly creative communications teams led by Jerry Hartz, Clayton McCleskey, Ryan Mahoney, Angela Canterbury, as well as the DC leadership team of Jerry Lavery, Kira Rebar, Alex Lawson, Amy Redlinsky, and E.B. DuPont. Plus, those who keep the trains running, Peter Tejan, David Sands, Sophia Tumbalakis, and of course, I cannot overlook our dynamic production company of Simpler Media and its audio magician, Evo Terra. Most importantly, I think I can safely speak for democracy lovers everywhere when I say we are endlessly grateful to the partners on the ground for their tireless work supporting resilient, inclusive governments. I would be remiss not to thank the Honorable Mayor of Kyiv, Vitaly Klitschko, Internews President Jeannie Borgo, the Task Force for Global Health CEO, Dr. David Ross, Ambassador Roger Noriega, Eden President Malik Savic, Guatemalan Congressman Ninette Montenegro, and of course, the stars of the pod, the consortium's country teams from Armenia, El Salvador, Ethiopia, Guatemala, Haiti, Honduras, Kosovo, Libya, Ukraine, Tunisia, and Sudan for their thoughtful conversations this season. Plus, I cannot overlook the exceptional contribution from Secretary Madeleine Albright, who graciously made time for democracy in Episode 5. While this does mark the end of Season 1, please promise me that you'll continue to subscribe to this feed as we lay the groundwork for an exceptional second season of Democracy the Podcast, which will include a remarkable deep dive into the righteous indignation of empowered autocrats everywhere as we continue to shine light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Until then, I'm your host, Adrian Ross. This podcast has been produced by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Global Elections and Political Transitions Award and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the U.S. government and is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media. For more information on Democracy, the podcast, and to access the complete archives, please visit www.seps.org forward slash podcast.